0: plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans plan features and taxes and fees may vary
1: Mike's on he's ready to go All right, we're back here, <clears throat> excuse me, hour two here on this Sunday morning. We're coming to you live from the Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loan Studios. Challenging times, obviously, and Rocket Mortgage is prepared to help. If you need mortgage assistance, contact their team 24-7 at rocketmortgage.com. From their home to yours, the team at Rocket Mortgage is with you. Coming to you on WFN in New York and across the country on uh, CBS uh, Sports Radio on this uh, Sunday morning. We haven't had any events, obviously, in sports. You do have the uh, Jordan documentary, which they have moved up. ESPN, in need of something, uh, has moved this up. They had planned it for later in the year. They have moved it up to this evening, and it's gotten a lot of attention. Why? Because there's nothing else going on. I mean, that's the biggest reason why. Not that it isn't an interesting subject. It is. But these things usually just have a certain role when you're going to deal with a 10-part series that goes back as far back as this goes. But it is Jordan. It is the Bulls. So it is getting uh, a good amount of attention, especially now where anything In sports gets a little attention because there's just nothing going on. Now, a lot of attention is going to be paid to the draft. It always is. This year, of course, it's going to uh, present itself as a welcome diversion for the uh, thirsty uh, sports fan who hasn't had anything to really uh, sink his teeth into. We will now have the draft this week, a very different draft on a lot of levels. We've touched on that the last couple of weeks. Scott Pioli joins us again now. Scott, welcome. How are you?
0: I'm doing well, Mike. Thanks. How are you doing today?
1: Good, thank you. All right. The draft's here. We're, right, we're a couple of days away. We're there now. And a couple of things have jumped out. Number one is Beckham and this failed test. Now, we talked about how the guys who red-flagged were really going to get hurt this year. How much of a problem do you think it is for his status at the top of the draft to have this happen now?
0: Well, you know, Mike, I think every team looks at this differently. And, and I think... You know, in 2020, teams and leaders, coaches, and general managers look at positive tests differently than they did 20 years ago. Definitely different than they did, you know, even 10 years ago. And I think what's happened here, and I'm not speaking. This is these are not my values, but there's a lot of general managers and head coaches that understand what um, culturally what college students do now. Right? Some of them say, okay. Players smoke pot now um, similar to their generation drank beer. Again, whether that's true or not, that's, that's always up for argument. I think what happens is a lot of teams now say, okay, this happened now. The players should have known. So is this a player that has a problem because they knew the test was coming and couldn't put it down or couldn't not smoke, right? Or do they say that this is a player who has a problem? Is this a sign that the player is a heavy smoker? Because, again, there's, again, we're trying to find out, the league is trying to find out whether, you know, what is the reason that people smoke pot? Are they doing it as a a painkiller, as an alternative to opiates? You know, there's so much more information out there, and there's teams that look at this as it's taboo. There's no way that I'm going to take a guy that has tested positive for for pot or smoked pot. Then there's general managers and, and leaders that say, okay, he tested positive bad thing. Now, is this a pattern of behavior? And Mike, this is where I'm going to pause. I think this is when you get red flags on a player, right? Where players have some sort of what we, you know, teams call character issues, right? Whether this is a character issue or not, um, that can be debated. Again, we go back to certain cultures um, and, and communities where, where again, whether you, you and I agree or not, smoking pot is part of the, the community culture. But if you go back and you find anyone who has some sort of transgression or issue or problem, is this a pattern of behavior? Is there a pattern of behavior, um, you know, legally, academically, anything that can be red flagged, as we say. So I think that's what general managers want to try to find out, is is there a pattern of
1: behavior? Well, see, what bothers me is the idea that if a guy knows he's going to get tested, Right. you you got to be clean. It's like it's like you know it's coming. It's not a surprise. You know it's coming. You know you're getting ready for the draft. You know what's going to be out there. That's where then you don't care. I mean, that, or, or you're just sloppy, one or the other.
0: Or you made a really bad decision. Right. And, and my right. here's what I'm saying. I'm not defending this. I just want to – I'm not saying that I like it. Here's what I'll say. I know But would it knock of you really off
1: teams. the board with the guy you're saying it wouldn't? Um, I don't think it's knocking him off the board anymore. Okay.
0: I, don't think it, I don't think it does, because here's the thing, Mike, and, and let's be real. Good people do bad things. Smart people do dumb things, all right? This was a really bad decision. It's going to cost him. It, there, there's no doubt it's going to cost him. Now, we've seen players in the past that have had issues like and this is not condoning it. This is not justifying it. That, this is not saying it's okay, but I think as an evaluator, there's this very fine line, you have to you have to be in this space to evaluate and not overjudge someone as a human being.
1: And we've and seen guys drop and we've seen guys drop who turned out to be really good players. Warren Sapp.
0: Yep. Right. Remember that. That yep. was a completely different day and age. Yeah. people can. He dropped like
1: a stone. Water? He became a great player. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. The tackle
1: you know, a couple of years ago, the big tackle a couple of years ago, uh, Tunstall, Right. He. He. Yeah. He, he, he t- 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 yeah. yeah. He, was, he
0: was caught on film doing. It. Yeah. Or yeah. on. So, again, and I'm not condoning it, right? Here's what I'm saying. A lot of people listening to this, if they really sit still and think about their own life, their own behavior at different times that they've made bad decisions and done silly things during those years between 16 and 22, again, I'm not condoning it. I want to be clear about that. I'm just saying good people do not so
1: smart things. All right. You've seen two teams come out this week, uh, and guys you know really well. We're open for business. We're open for business. We want to trade our pick. You've seen the Lions do it. You've seen the Giants do it. Does it hurt them, help them? Doesn't matter that they've done that. Do they look a little desperate when they're doing that? No, I don't think you look
0: desperate at all because, truthfully, everyone's... Well, that's not true. Most teams are open for business, and I think what it is is you're... There's only so many phone calls that you can make to the people that you know and the friends that you have in the league, right? And part of being... um, being available for a trade and being able to make a trade is letting people know that you're open for business. I don't think it looks desperate at all because all you're telling people is you'd be willing to listen to trade talks. That doesn't mean that you have to do one. And, I, and again, I think that it's a known feeling throughout the league when someone says that, it's not a, a space of desperation. It's more just letting people know. Because like I say, Mike, you can, part of what you do during the lead up to the draft is you're calling people from teams that you know. And you're gathering information. You're giving a little bit of information, but you're hoping to gather much more than you give. But in order to get, you have to give. So you can make maybe eight, nine, ten of those calls, and then you're still missing two-thirds of the league, so you have to let it be known um, that you'd be willing to listen uh, to a trade. Because otherwise, if if teams don't hear that, there may be one team that might be willing to do something to move up that wouldn't know what... uh, unless you went public with it.
1: Draft talk to me, and we're talking about Scott Piola as always, draft talk to me is like presidential campaigns. 95% of it is garbage, okay? We all know that. Because the same guy who's open for business tells you when he drafts the guy, oh, I wouldn't have moved in a million years. I was locked into this player eight weeks ago, okay? The same guy who was begging people to trade for the pick is an hour later telling you that he had this guy two months ago when he was locked into him. So we all know this stuff's a bunch of nonsense.
0: Well, uh, there's... There's nonsense coming from every
1: angle, though, right, Right, every angle,
0: every angle. Teams, from from, uh, GMs, personnel directors, coaches, agents. Scouts, yeah,
1: agents, scouts, scouts, everybody, everybody. Than than agents. Agents are unbelievable. Yeah, the agents got to get some interest in everything else. And uh, so, I mean, somebody came to me yesterday and said, oh, the Pats are going to trade up to three. I said, if the Pats ever trade up to three, I mean, I will fall off the couch because if there's a team that is – against ever making a move like that, giving up its whole draft for one player, and then paying them, it's the Pats. I mean, that's against everything they believe in.
0: You know, Mike, for years, Bill and I always talked about, you know, Bill did a lot of trading. Um, when I was learning, uh, you know, in Cleveland and watching him, there were a lot of trades that went on. He moved up the board, he moved down the board, and then you know, the, at the Jets watched a couple moves. But when we got to the Patriots, part of the program was we understood that the, your drafting isn't going to be perfect, right? The more opportunities you had to pick players, the more opportunities you had to hit it, because you knew that you were going to miss on a bunch.
1: There's a right? try percentage so There's a try percentage yes. Absolutely. So what right. you
0: need to do is, is have a lot of picks in order to get a number right. So our big thing was, was collecting currency, and this was us being real with ourselves. We knew that we weren't that smart. We knew that we weren't that good. So the more opportunities you get to pick, we don't care you know, two, three, day, four days after the draft or even a year after the draft when someone's saying, well, they had 12 picks. They only hit on four. That's not a very good percentage. Well, you know what? If you hit on three or four players that are really good and that are helping your football team, that's what matters.
1: Plus, you've so, got a 12-win team. It's not like everybody's going to make your team. I mean, you've got, you got a really good team to begin with.
0: So you're drafting action players that maybe won't make your active roster, but sometimes, like I remember the year that we traded for for Randy Moss, we knew that we were picking players that year that were not going to make our 53-man roster, that we were more hopeful that we were going to be able to put them on the practice squad and eventually develop them. And we had you know a bunch of middle-round picks. Because, again, part of this is not just the now. When you're trying to build a – a program that is good in the now and lasts you have to be thinking long term so the the idea that you're bringing up I don't disagree with you at all mike it would see it would be abnormal for bill to do that but i'll say this every once in a while as you and i know Bill throws an absolute curveball.
1: That would be a curveball. That would really, yeah. be, that, especially for a player who's way, yeah, for sure. especially for a player who's also got an injury problem. I mean, that would be an amazing curveball. But uh, unless, we'll talk, my, yeah.
0: here's, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, unless the only thing I'll say, unless he has information to which he could, and, and which he could, Alabama, right. and their doctors that is is good or is better than anyone else has. And, and just just hear me out for one second on this, please. Remember Jalen Smith a couple of years ago. Everybody had him as a top-five pick. Most people had him. I'm talking about the linebacker coming out of Notre yes, Dame. Yes. Was possibly being the number-one overall pick. Now, more than half the league had him off their board medically, okay? More than half the league. Because he had this injury. It was not only the ACL and the LCL, but he also had nerve damage. So he had this thing that's called drop foot. And he couldn't. People thought he would never even be be able to walk. There were a lot of doctors saying that he would not be able to walk without a limp, let alone run. So the doctor who knew the most, and the doctor who did his final, you know, NFL that the, the shared with the other teams uh, medical information. Oh, by the way, happened to be one of the doctors for the Dallas Cowboys. The Dallas Cowboys took this incredible risk in the second round. You know, player misses the entire rookie season. A year later, he's a starter. A year later, he's a Pro Bowl player. No so question. Sometimes having – it's not even inside information. Just hearing a voice that knows a lot from a very good place gives you more confidence to take a
1: risk. How do teams – we're talking with Scott Scioli as we get ready for the draft this week. How about when players hear – they hear big players being on the block draft week. How does, How does that play into what teams are thinking when they hear – Oh, Fournette's going to get moved. Beckham's going to get moved. And listen, Beckham... I have ever, I don't know if Beckham's going to get moved or not. I have no idea. But I would tell you this. Beckham now is going the way I always knew he would go. The next move down, he no longer is a number one receiver. He's going the way that every player who is going to ruin his career has always gone. And you can tell. I mean, the guy has had 13 touchdowns. He had 13 touchdowns in a year with the Giants. He's had 13 touchdowns in his last three seasons. I mean, and now he's on. you're talking about him being on a move again. I mean, you can just see the devaluation of the player, which is sad because he has an incredible amount of talent. But how about the idea of you start hearing about these guys pre-draft? How does it play into a team's consciousness that they hear these guys are on the block before the draft?
0: Yeah, and real quick to comment on, on Beckham. You know, here's the thing, Mike. You're, you're hitting the nail on the head. He will always be a number one receiver talent. Whether or not he's capable of actually being the number one receiver because of his availability and/or his dependability um, is always going to be the question. But you're right; um, he is being talked about again. Here's the other thing. Here's the big thing about this year's draft um, that I think is unique um, compared to other drafts because of the circumstance we're in. Because um, players can't get to team doctors and get physicals, there's going to be ha- there's going to have to be even more. The belt and suspenders thing of contingency plans on trades. So, if let's just say Team X trades for for Beckham, and they give up their I don't know I pick it out of the uh, the 15th pick overall in the first round, right? Okay, I don't even know off the top of my head who does, but they they trade for this pick. Pick 15 comes. The Browns use pick 15. By the time they get Beckham, and they're able to give him a physical, what happens if he doesn't pass the physical? Well, usually, if trades are done, you want the player, the veteran player that's on a roster, to get a physical before you consummate the trade, right? Because then you have to build in less contingencies, because contingency right. always is that the player reports and passes his physical. So now, in a case like this, where a player can't get somewhere and get the physical before the draft, but then the draft pick is taken and burned, and this Team X gets the player who doesn't pass a physical, and I'm just using Beckham, it could be any player right. that's under contract now and you don't have a contingency plan there's going to have to be a significant contingency plan where is the the Browns if OBJ doesn't pass the physical then that team X is going to get the get that team get the Browns first round pick next year or some contingent contingency pick next year but that may not work out real well what happens if the Browns go to the Super Bowl you know and win it then you're looking at pick number 32 so the the idea of doing trades you know, in this climate right now, for veteran players, to me, is is a little bit disconcerting. You know, again, I go back to the Randy Moss trade that we did in in 07. And I was, you know, negotiating with Mr. Davis late until the night. We went through the first day of the draft. You know, he really wanted our third-round pick. We weren't going to do it. So the draft, the first day of the draft ends. I'm on the phone with Mr. Davis on and off and on and off until about... It was after 1 o'clock in the morning. I was already back at my house, laying on my couch, sitting in my boxers, wrapped up in a blanket, taking these calls from Mr. Davis, and we finally consummated the agreed-to-terms on the trade that it would be our fourth-rounder, which was going to be the first round that started on day two of the draft. Fourth round, first round, tenth pick. We had to get Moss on a plane in the middle of the night, get him to us, get him on the ground. He came to the building. Took a physical, was seen that morning, you know, before, before the draft actually started. I think it was either 11 o'clock or noon. Had to get the physical, meet with Bill, meet with myself. We had to get the thumbs up on the physical, and then we had to renegotiate the contract. And, and you know, I'll never forget... Bill had stepped out to go to the bathroom and talking to Randy. He said, listen, Randy, now the last part of this is i got to call your agent and talk to him about this contract. Because right? this is another layer. Can the team accept the contract that the player is coming in on? And because you have to fit the player sure. and the contract into the trade. So I, before I could even finish my sentence, I'll never forget the look in Randy's eyes. He leaned forward like he was really close to me, and he literally had tears well in, in his eyes. He says, I don't give a damn about the contract pay me whatever you have to do, get me out of there, get me here. And it was one of the coolest moments because Randy, again, Randy is such a misunderstood person. I think people understand him better now because he he allows people to see the best of himself, and the best of him is incredible. And we made that trade, but those were all the things that we had to do before before 11 o'clock in the morning Because we had the 10th pick in the fourth round, we had to have all of those I's dotted and T's crossed before we could even make that trade.
1: Amazing stuff. All right, I got some other stuff to get to you. Before I do that, let me get a break in. We're talking with Scott Pioli back after this. Alright, CBS Sports Radio's toll-free line, 855-212-4227, is sponsored by GEICO. Whether you own or rent, GEICO makes it easy to bundle home and auto insurance. Having a home is hard work, as you know, so get a quote at GEICO.com because it's easy. GEICO.com. Draft so this Thursday, we're talking with Scott Pioli, the uh, NFL Executive of the Year, on multiple occasions, uh, who obviously uh, spent many years with the Pats among his travels in the NFL. Um, and, uh, Scott, i got three things for for you that fans hear a lot uh, and give me the thoughts on it from a draft standpoint, whether it's a big factor or not. Number one, teams have pet schools. I'll give you an example. Not just in Alabama, who everyone would love, or a Clemson. You had a lot of Rutgers players in New England. Um, do, do teams favor players from certain schools and, for, and, and certain college coaching staffs?
0: Yeah, I think that is a real thing, Mike. And um, the, the Rutgers run in New England started um, shortly after I left, and I think it was, it was a couple of things that, um, you know, I remember I knew Greg Shiano when he was at Rutgers and introduced him to Bill, and he got to know Bill well. They cultivated a relationship. Some of the, um, the culture that Greg had at Rutgers was similar to the culture that Bill had, um, just like it's similar to the one that, that Nick has. So, I think sometimes general managers and coaches want to know how players can thrive in a certain type of culture and demanding situation. I think the other thing the other thing that was important was Stephen Belichick, Bill's oldest son, went to Rutgers, played lacrosse there for four years, and then in his fifth year, was a long snapper on the Rutgers team. So they had insight into players in terms of not only how, how good they were physically and what they could do talent-wise, who they were as people, and whether or not those players could um, fit into Bill's program. That, that's just that program. But you look, up, look back to a lot of coaches, you can see sometimes when there's relationships, that coaches have with staffs with people that go back, they trust the information that they're getting out of those schools um, because, again, the way the the, the head coach of the college program has been run. I mean, you go back to the how much did the, the Giants in the you know in the '80s love Big Ten offensive loved linemen? Them. Just loved big, them, loved them. Bill would only
1: take them. Him. He wouldn't take a California offensive lineman. He wanted he wanted Big Ten offensive linemen. That was it. Michigan, Indiana, etc. He wanted Big Ten guys. Yeah, yeah, and
0: you know, and because again there were, there were certain things, there were certain traits that existed in certain conferences, right? Back during the 80s and 90s, it was always clear that the Big 10 was a big conference with big people and certain talent. They, yes, they had good skilled players here and there, but if you wanted speed and athleticism, you went to the SEC or the south southern part of the ACC.
1: Interesting. All right. On field performance, the productive player versus the triangle numbers. Uh, you know what? He's too small. He's too, but he's highly productive. I always put Emmett Smith in this class. I mean, Emmett Smith was incredibly productive. Oh, he's too slow. He's too this. He's too that. How about the, the football player versus the, the numbers that you guys live right. on?
0: Right, I think what you have is you have ideals, what we call ideals for each player, for each position. Whether it's running back and you have a a baseline in terms of height, weight, speed, and certain physical characteristics and factors that you have for every single position. Do you make exceptions at times? Yes, I mean, you bring up one of the you know as a, as a former scouting director and general manager when in terms of training and having a manual, you, I used to go through the manual every year and say, these are the standards that we're looking for in terms of height, weight, speed, quickness, the tools right, and understand that we can only make certain exceptions. Emmett Smith was always one of those guys that we listed as an exception. another one was Barry Sanders, yep so if you 're going to have a player again, at certain positions, you know, for instance, certain offensive linemen that don't meet the height requirement or don't have the bulk requirement. Um, you know, they better have some other special things. I go back to the time at the New York Jets, you know, Bill loved big offensive linemen. And I remember the conversation that was going on when Kevin Mawai was about to become uh, an unrestricted free agent. And there was concern that he, when he had come out of LSU, and I remember this number distinctly, his weight was only 282 pounds. But Kevin Mawai never, ever, ever in his life played like a 282-pound offensive lineman. And I remember having the conversation with Par, uh, Parcells asking him about Bart Oates. What set him apart? What made him different as an undersized offensive lineman that was acceptable? And we had these long conversations about Kevin Mawai, again, who didn't meet certain standards on paper, but he overcame it in other ways. He's one of the smartest players I knew. He was one of the best holders. I ever. He had an ability to hold a player, a defensive lineman, and pull him close into him so his arms were never extended, and the officials couldn't see him. He was one of the greatest holders of all time.
1: A Hall of Famer, and the first guy that Parcells signed as a free agent was, was Kevin Mawai. That yeah. was a huge signing. All right, quarterback aside, leave quarterback out. Mm-hmm what position do you feel coming out of the draft is the easiest for guys to acclimate into the NFL and the hardest, Mm. not, not counting quarterbacks? Ooh,
0: I think starting with the most difficult. Yes. um, I would say defensive line because there's things that happen down in between the tackles um, that sometimes it's not just the physical thing, Mike, it's a mental and emotional thing. And more often, the greatest jump that you've seen, that you see in a, the, the trajectory of a player's career between years one and two, happens at defensive line, because there's a quick maturation that has to happen. Because there are there are grown up things that happen down in there that it, it's only for grown ups. And there's a mental. The, the entire game takes um, elements of mental and emotional resiliency, and um, <laughs> you know truly behavioral things that are not the norm and the standard in humanity. So I've always thought that not only growing physically, but mentally and emotionally to play down in the, you know, in the trenches of the defensive line is probably the most difficult in terms of the easiest. Wow. Um, you know, Mike. I I don't know that. I don't think I have an answer for that because a lot depends on. I mean, how people good the coach always thought the,
1: the people system. always thought that running back was an easy position for guys to transition out of for young players. Is that? Do you agree or no?
0: Well, here's what I'll say, Mike. In one sense, I'll say yes because in terms of the talent and being able to run with the ball, with the ball in your hands, um, and and make people miss and do the things that you need a running back to do with the ball in his hands. Yes, but in order to be a complete running back, they have to be good in the passing game as well. And a lot of really good college running backs are not necessarily good in the passing game. Now, there's some that can catch the ball and run good routes, right, because they have that athletic ability. But then, as you know, if you're going to be on the field in passing situations, you better learn how to block because that running back is the last line of defense usually between your quarterback getting hit and not getting hit. So if there's a running back who can have exceptional talent um, and and do all the things on the field with the ball in his hands. Generally speaking, the whole blitz pickup and the blocking ability takes a little bit of a, takes a little time, Mike. So it's um, there, there's an answer. I don't have the answer for you right now. I think the easiest one is is more system specific. When you've got a player that not necessarily isn't necessarily at a specific position, it's making a transition. It's easiest when you're going to a similar system to whatever your pro system is
1: going to be. All right, we're talking with Scott Piola. You were enormously successful, obviously, uh, with your teams. Um, Draft is Thursday. It's Sunday. What was the last thing that had to be done Then you knew you were ready? What was the last thing, and did it happen two days in, before the draft the day before the draft when did you want it buttoned up and what was the last thing that had to be done that made you think that it was done that your work was done and you were ready to go
0: it was usually some sort of um character background check or some sort of medical check would be the last things done because you know those things are day to day um the the film work needs to be done the evaluation needs to be done You you, you know, that stuff should be done weeks ago, quite honestly, Mike. You're not going to be – you shouldn't be – Are you working right
1: up to the draft, or is the day before the draft a quiet day?
0: The day before the uh, draft is a quiet day, and that's where you're really starting to train your mind to have some peace and to make a couple of calls to some friends to remind them that you're going to be open for business. Um, the day before the draft and two days before the draft, you're really starting to just settle in and you have to be at peace with your board. You've talked for the final time with the, the people you're going to be making decisions with and what you really need to do is start to still your mind because you know, it's not just one day, Mike, right? It's not just making that first round pick. There's been, now you've also talked about the evaluation part is over, but you've also started to talk about the lead up to the strategy part of a draft and then knowing that come the first day of the draft something's going to happen that you weren't necessarily sure was going to happen and you have to have have a clear mind to start thinking about what the best path is moving forward
1: I want to spend a little time when we get a chance next week on the on, or next time we talk on the what happens when the draft's over and the free agent stuff cuz that's some of the most fun stuff in the draft <laughs> is it's what goes on in that hour after hey, the y'all. free agency <laughs> and, and 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 what you've promised players and everything but let me ask this one last one before I let you go and thanks for your time number 1 um The day before the draft, you know the people that are going to be in the room. You're in the room. You know who's in the room. You know who's in the room, who's not in the room. The guys that are going to be in the room, are they spending a lot of time together the day before the draft, or are they staying away from each other the day before the draft? Um,
0: What I've seen, what a lot of people do is they go out and they golf together. I don't golf, so they'll go out and go do something together, but just for a couple of hours. And, um, yeah, I – you know, again, the people that I worked with, we would visit for a little while, and, and then we'd kind of self-isolate and go spend time with the family or just kind of um, – I think everyone, <laughs> everyone's about to be really tired of one another because the, the the number of meetings, the amount of time that's been spent together, you just want a little bit of distance from, from the other person. Because Did you, know you
1: spend be a lot of time, Scott, knowing you were in the back of the – you guys were in the back of the draft all the time. You're at the bottom of the draft all the time because of your success. Did you care a lot about what was happening at the top of the draft? Did you spend a lot of time talking about what was going to happen at the top of the draft? Or did you wait until the middle of the round before you guys got busy because you knew you weren't involved until late? I mean, or were you very fascinated? Was there a lot of conversation about what was going to happen at the top of the draft?
0: Well, you know, there were a couple of times, even though we, were, we picked at 32 when we took Benjamin Watson, 32 when we took Logan Mankins, you know, there were times where we were near the end. There, there were a number of times because of trades and um, different things that we were in the middle of the draft. I'll tell you what we didn't do, Mike, is we didn't spend a whole lot of time um, looking at some of the top quarterbacks or the top players that we knew were not gonna be a reality for us, like the top left tackles. Once we had Matt Light. Right. And once you had Brady
1: you weren't spending a lot of time a quarterback, obviously. Right.
0: Because really what you're doing then is the time that you're spending on certain players that you know that you're gonna have no chance to get to, nor do you really have a great need to get to Because, again, it's not just getting the best player. It's building a team. So you have to start focusing on where your teams are. If we needed a, a, you know, we knew we needed a defensive lineman. We weren't concerning ourselves with the number one defensive lineman in the draft when we were picking number 14, you know, in 2004. We were hoping that we were going to have a shot at Ty Warren, right, who ended up coming and being a player. But, you know, it's you part of – Being good at your job, I think, is understanding what's important and what's not important, what matters, what doesn't matter, and wasting time and energy on things that you don't have control over is is just going to lead to not having enough time for the things that
1: are important. Listen, thanks. Great job. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks Thanks, very much, Scott. Thank you. you. Scott Pioli, back after this.
0: T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network, from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours.